Hey guys, so last week we got to basically learn how big of a jerk I was during my marriage and learn about my children and things that I had done that I was truly regretful for. This week you're going to probably get into the deepest part of the book. This is the part where we talk about basically suicide, um, moving forward, depression. This is where everything really kicks into high gear. And uh, it's definitely um, it's definitely the hardest part for me to relive. The thing about doing this book, and one of the reasons why I put it off so long doing the audio version, is I really struggled writing the book, just reliving every instance. I had to actually go look up some dates and stuff, you know, for like the house being haunted when my parents bought the house, that type of thing. But I also had to make sure that I got facts right on, you know, the day of the suicide was on a Monday, a uh, suicide attempt was on a Monday. You know, I had to look things up like that. And so it, I couldn't just skim over these things. And as I'm you know, now that I'm at the point where I'm reading the stories, you know, I've not physically picked this book up or read anything about it since it got printed in a year's time, you know, and, and now I have to go back and not only read it, but I have to read it in a way that sounds convincing and put emotion into it, which means that I can't just blow over it. I literally have to read it. And it makes it uh, very emotional, especially when you get to some of the stuff about my mother and uh, this part here, when you start talking about the suicide attempt and, and reading about the pain, it just brings it all back. And, you know, I I hate doing it. <laughs> I, 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 you can ask Tracy. I mean, I put this off to the very last minute to do every week. Like I'm recording this Wednesday night because... It's due out tomorrow morning, so I have to do it, but it's something that I just can't do. I mean, like I told her earlier today, I got to go read that stupid book because that's my approach to it, but it's got to be done, and I'm just glad that we're about halfway through with it after today, so uh, here's the, uh, the toughest part, so uh, at least that part's over right now. Chapter 11 my own prison. I am a huge music buff, and anybody who's known me for more than a week knows that the Beatles have played a huge role in my life. John Lennon, while not a perfect person by any means, is my celebrity role model. I use the defining term celebrity because my dad will always be my ultimate role model. My dad, while also not perfect, laid the foundation for my work ethic and set a great example of putting family first. Sadly, the latter did not take hold before the damage was done. I mention the music because, like many, I can always find that perfect song that fits whatever emotion I'm experiencing at the time. Even though this song had come out four years earlier, My Own Prison by Creed became my theme song. In the song, Scott Stapp very emotionally exclaims that he created his own prison. And that, my friends, is exactly what I had done. I had, in fact, created my own prison. 
There was no one to post my bail. And this prison had no visitors, so no file hidden in the cake would be coming. I was stuck in a prison harder to escape from than Alcatraz. The prison was made inside my head. I could not get out. The first time Cheryl asked for a divorce, I was convinced that I was an innocent man. A year later, I not only knew that I was guilty, I was on my knees pleading with the judge to deliver the death sentence. I was in the midst of losing everything. What was my life going to be like without my wife, whom I'd completely fallen in love with all over again? The delusional life that I had been living has now been replaced with the true vision that I had at the beginning of our relationship. Too little, too late. What about the kids? Sure, I may not have taken them to the movies that they wanted to see, but no one could ever have doubted how much my time spent with them meant. They were my life. Now I would only see them a few days a week. I also needed to find a new place to live. How was I going to be able to afford that? I would be losing my partner, alienated from my kids, losing my home, and struggling financially as I lived a solitary life. How could this not be prison? And worse, I had built this prison. The next two weeks were completely miserable. I tried to put on a brave face for the kids. I think I did a relatively good job when they were around, but children are generally smarter and observe way more than we admit. For the rest of my stay at the house, I slept on the sofa. Cheryl had given me an option to still sleep in the bed, but why would I want to share a bed with someone who had clearly moved on? I did not need her pity. My honest desire was to not be there at all, but there was no way for the kids to get to school without me. I would wait for them to go to bed, then take my rightful spot on the sofa. Sadly, I knew that sleep would not be on the agenda. Sleep would be replaced with several hours of self-deprecation and crying. I would eventually fall asleep for an hour or two, only to wake up to my tear-drenched pillow and repeat the process. Cheryl would get up for work around 5 a.m. and be gone by 6.15. That's the time that I would get the kids up and get them ready for school. After they were out of the house, I went to work. Well, sometimes I went to work. It was hard enough to get out of bed and get the kids ready. I was still in the mortgage business, but, but now I was in a commission-only position. I had zero desire to get up and even go into the office, let alone to call total strangers and ask if they wanted to refinance their mortgage. This was a great company to work for, but they wanted me to be sunshine and rainbows every morning, and that's a little hard to do when you've had your heart completely ripped out of your chest. They didn't care what I had going on in my personal life. Obviously, since this job paid commission only, when I was not at work, I was not getting paid. This did not help the situation. I'd been really good at this job, but now I literally did not give a fuck. And those were my good days. After about a week of attempting to sleep on the couch, I determined that there was no way I could live this way. The entire time I was home, I was constantly reminded of what I was about to lose. I felt unwanted. And in my mind, I was a nuisance that Cheryl couldn't wait to be gone. I had no one else to blame but myself, and trust me, by this time, it was clear as crystal this was all my fault. The pain was so intense that it took every bit of intestinal fortitude I had to not just completely break down. It was a struggle to talk without a quiver in my voice. 
My employers made it perfectly clear when I informed them of the situation that they did not care. They expected me to perform when I was at work at the same level I had before. Their attitude was that everyone had problems and I should not bring mine to work. And as I mentioned before, I had some of the greatest friends in the world, but I was just too embarrassed to reveal this to them. Everyone thought that we had this fairy tale marriage, including me. And who wants to tell their friends that they repeatedly called their wife names like bitch or whore and screamed at their kids over every little thing that they did? My kids were just being kids. If I had done these same actions to my friend's mother or sister, they would have drugged me out back and beat the living shit out of me. I was in the worst emotional pain that I had ever been in, and I had absolutely no way to make the pain stop. I needed help. This darkness took over telling me that I had no reason for living. The only light that I saw at the end of the tunnel was the headlamp of a locomotive careening straight for me. For over a week, I prayed every night to not wake up. Suicide was something that I grew up believing was a one-way ticket to hell. I'd never understood how anyone could ever contemplate taking their own life. Yet, here I was, talking myself into it bit by bit with each day that passed. I realize now why people did commit suicide. Sometimes you hurt so bad that you just do not see another option. Hitting rock bottom was what helped me to understand suicidal thoughts. In those moments, I did not care about the financial hardship that it would cause my family or the pain that it would cause them. This included not only my immediate family, but my parents and sisters as well. All I focused on was how I just wanted this intense pain to stop. During one of my sleepless nights in the early morning hours of Monday, March 19, 2001, I made the decision to end my life. The plan I hatched was simple. I would get the children off to school and then empty the contents of our medicine cabinet into my stomach and finally be able to go to sleep. But this time, it would be for good. Cheryl left and I carried out my regular routine of waking the children, getting them dressed, fed, and off to school. After those tasks were completed, I knew it was time to put up or shut up. I made a phone call to work to let them know that I would not be coming into work that day. I sat at the kitchen table and hand-wrote separate personal notes to Cheryl, Austin, Amber, and Alex. Each letter was different, but they all essentially said, I'm sorry. What else could I say? Once the letters were written and laid out on the table, I made the short trip to the kitchen cabinet over the sink. This is where we kept all of our medicine. I pulled out several prescription pill bottles as well as cold medicine and Tylenol. These would work together to form a deadly concoction, and I swallowed every pill that was available. There had to have been at least 200 pills in the mix. I then went to the sofa to lay down. This was it. I was almost home. A big smile stretched across my face and that feeling of peace that I had been searching for enveloped me. I knew I would soon pass out and it would all be over. Just a few more minutes. My body jolted from the warm cocoon that was forming around me. There was a flaw in my plan. In my sleep-deprived stupor, I had not considered the fact that my children would be arriving home before Cheryl. 
Now, instead of embracing what I thought would be the sweet comfort of death, I was desperately trying to pull myself out of the haze in which I was fading. I could not let my children be the ones to find my body. What I was doing was horrible enough, but that would leave eternal scars for those children. As much as I wanted the pain to end, I could not do it at their expense. At approximately 9.30 a.m., I stumbled my way to the phone and called 911. I told them what I had done and my address as coherently as possible. Within minutes, an ambulance was at the house and the paramedics were loading me onto a stretcher. I asked the technicians to grab the letters off of the table for me, which they did, and I stored them in my pants pocket. I vaguely remember the neighbors watching as the EMTs placed me in the ambulance. As the emergency vehicle rushed me to Southwest Hospital, the EMTs worked frantically pumping the contents out of my stomach. After arriving at the hospital, I was met by several medical personnel from doctors to nurses to therapists. Someone asked me who they should notify, and I gave them the number to Cheryl's workplace. They were unable to contact her on the first few attempts, which was not unusual considering that she worked in a factory setting. The nurse brought me a small can of liquid charcoal to drink. That would absorb any potent medication that would still be in my stomach, especially the Tylenol. Excessive amounts of acetaminophen can do severe damage to your liver. That was their primary concern at the moment. I was told that I had to not only drink the whole can, but I had to keep it down. That was a task. The can was small. I'm guessing about six ounces. I'm guessing about six ounces. The charcoal was a chunky black liquid that had a sandy texture. I heaved after every small sip. The nurse had to force it down me. After an hour or so, I was told that the hospital had gotten in contact with Cheryl and she was on her way. In the meantime, a therapist came in to ask me some mental health questions. The usual questions. Why did I do this? Did I still want to harm myself? Did I feel like I needed to check myself in for evaluation or treatment? My answer was no to all the questions. So after a few hours, I was released to go home with Cheryl. That was an interesting 10-minute drive. No words were spoken. I sat slumped in the passenger seat wallowing in shame as she drove with the most pissed off look on her face. I'm not really sure what I expected her reaction to be, but I knew this was not what I had hoped. When we got home, she got out of the car, walked into the house, and slammed the door. The kids were in our home, being watched by our next-door neighbor. She was our normal babysitter. She would watch the kids when they got out of school until Cheryl got home from work. That was usually only for an hour or two. When I saw the neighbor leave, I decided to walk into the house. It was about 6 p.m., and I sat on the sofa without saying a word. Cheryl was on the other end of the sofa. She was also quiet for a moment. Then she abruptly started asking what the hell I'd been thinking and telling me what a stupid thing that was to do. The home phone rang, and it was my friend Johnny Hikes. I had completely forgotten that it was Monday. We played basketball indoors at a church every Monday night. He was just making sure that I was still going. I'd had no sleep, had not eaten except for a belly full of pills and charcoal. I did not want to be alive. Of course I was going. Playing basketball had always been my way of leaving my troubles behind for a short period of time. The decision to go may have seemed strange under the circumstances, but it was a wise one on my part. I was able to talk to John in the way of the gym. I nonchalantly told him that I tried to kill myself earlier in the day. 
Whether he believed me or not, I still do not know, even to this day. After playing ball for a few hours, I felt refreshed. I was not a quitter. These few hours reminded me of my competitive spirit. I was not going out like that. As I drifted off to sleep that night, exhausted both mentally and physically, I was thinking more clearly than I had in weeks. Now was the time to turn my life around. Come hell or high water. Chapter 12. Life Goes On I wish that I could say that I put on my big boy pants, accepted the facts of my situation, and moved ahead with life. I put forth the effort, but life is complicated for everyone. My life had been very unpredictable up to this point. We're all accountable for our actions and susceptible to rough patches in life. What I learned through my trials was that we all have areas in our life that we may not be proud of, and that is part of life, part of being human. The goal is to learn from your mistakes and work on being a better person every day of your life. Those few hours on the basketball court cleared my head and got my competitive juices flowing. In my life, everything has always been a competition in some way. If someone says that I cannot do something, it's game on for me. That is exactly how I needed to respond at that moment in my life. In this past year, I had improved in many ways as a person and I needed to build on that. I was determined to find better ways to handle the stress in my life. Not handling stress properly led to anger issues. That in turn resulted in me ruining my marriage because I chose to take the anger out of my wife, who was not the root of the anger. The way that I had handled stress in the past and a time when I thought my life was really good was not going to work for me now, when I would be facing the toughest challenge of my life. After my suicide attempt, I decided to make some major changes. The first one was to focus on my work. Work would be a great distraction. I went into the office and embraced honesty. I apologized for missing work and in the process of explaining my mental health situation, I admitted that I tried to end my life. There was zero empathy and in fact, I was met with an I wish you would hurry up and get your shit together attitude. That cold response to me, I would never forget. Deep down, I knew that I could not work for a company that only cared about my production and nothing about me. As a manager, I have always tried to know what's going on in my employees' lives and show compassion for what they may be going through. This was a direct result of me learning that employees did not want to be just employees. They want to be part of an extended family. My goal has been to make sure that every employee that I've ever had work for me feel like family. I knew that I no longer wanted to work for this company. Luckily, I had a great friend, John, who was also an ex-co-worker at the Carlot Financing Company. He was in the mortgage business now. He was working for a great guy who had owned a small mortgage business for almost 30 years. This man, Lloyd, was getting older and he wanted some help in the office. Lloyd had been a business partner of John's dad, and he reached out to John and asked if he knew of another person that he trusted. John had actually called me with the offer a week before my suicide attempt. I told him that I would give a consideration. I met with Lloyd and intuitively knew that this was a better fit for me. I left the other company and started to work for this new company, and it was just what I needed. He gave me complete trust from the very beginning by giving me a key to the office, and he treated me like family. The greatest shift I needed to make was to move, and I could not stay in a house that I was no longer welcome in. 
That was just not good for my mental health. The problem was that I did not have any money for a place of my own. My best friend Ronald offered me a room at his place. If there was ever a friend that I could always count on, it was Rondell. The issue here, though, was that Rondell had a living girlfriend. She and her children had been staying there for a while. I felt that my presence might put a strain on their relationship, and I knew Rondell would not say so, even if that was the case, because he was that kind of friend. My solution was just to sleep at my house and stay away outside of that time. We had just recently gotten the internet, which was still in its infancy, and I'd never really used it during that time. But Cheryl spent much of her free time on there talking to people in chat rooms. This included the man that would eventually be her future husband. I thought, what the hell? If she was talking to other men before I was gone from the house, I was going to try to meet some women. That thought was an attempt at me being cocky, but in reality, I was extremely hurt. The knowing that she was no longer in love with me was bad enough. But the thought of her with another man, that was unbearable. When I started thinking about that, I got angry and jealous. Deep down, I knew that my real desire was to see if I could somehow make Cheryl jealous, rather than actually meet someone else. I was not inclined to meet anyone else. My recollection of how I met Gina is foggy. Our introduction may have been in a chat room, and if so, I'm not sure which one. The details matter very little. What is important is that for better or for worse, she would greatly affect the next six years of my life. Gina came into my life at a time when I most needed her. We had so much in common and made an instant connection. She was a paranormal investigator. She was in the mortgage business. And she was so funny. We began to talk on a regular basis. For the first time in over a year, I felt hope. Gina inspired me. But she had a dark history. She had recently moved here from out of state to escape an extremely abusive husband. The stories that she shared with me were some of the most horrible things that I had ever heard. Things that made me break down and cry thinking about this wonderful person and her children having to endure such atrocities. My self-confidence was slowly returning and I was enjoying my new job. I decided to take Rondell up on his offer. I felt that being out of my house would speed up the healing process. Clearly what I had envisioned for my life up to this point was far different than reality. Unfortunately, this would continue. All these good changes were within a month of my suicide attempt. Gina and I started spending time together and it just felt like we were a perfect match for each other. I was having at least a few days a week that I was happy. I still had some major issues in my life to figure out, but there was hope. Hope that had not existed a month earlier. I could not stop thinking about this girl. And then suddenly, Gina stopped returning my phone calls. I was confused about whether I had said something or done something wrong. The day before, we had had a great time hiking with the children. We spent the night in a little small cabin. The day had been great and it ended on a very positive note. After a few days of leaving several messages, she called to tell me that I had freaked her out when I brought her flowers to her workplace. And she just did not want to have any contact anymore. I was confused, hurt, and quite frankly shocked. We talked later and she told me that She had commitment issues because of the damage that her ex-husband had caused. She was falling for me, and that scared the living hell out of her. I understood, but at the same time, 
I didn't understand. Her logic confused me. She told me that she was really interested in me and had similar feelings, and for that reason she was afraid. And yet she wanted to end things before she got hurt because she had fallen for me. It seemed to me like she was going to get hurt either way. So why self-inflict the pain? So I've met this perfect person for me who feels the same, and yet we cannot be together. Gina was my sanity, and she was my safety net, and now she was gone. Just like that, in the space of six weeks, I had lost my wife because I treated her so bad and lost a girlfriend because I treated her too good. Try wrapping your head around that. An even deeper depression came over me. Once again, my depression affected my work, which in turn affected my finances. I got behind on my car payments and my car was repossessed. Ronald's girlfriend was not happy about me staying at his house. He would never ask me to leave, but I knew that would be for the best. But I had no money and nowhere to go. I managed to put together the money to get my car back, and I spent as much time as I could at the workplace. I would stay at the office until midnight sometimes, then go to Rondell's to sleep. I would get up at 6 a.m., go to Cheryl's house, wait in the driveway until she left for work. When she was gone, I would get the kids off to school and then back to work. The cycle left me exhausted and depressed. My hope was that using Rondo's house just as a place to sleep would cause less tension in their lives. After a few months of keeping up this rigorous schedule, a few things started to go my way. A former manager from my rent-to-own days found me online and reached out. He was now a regional manager for a new company in town called RentWise. One of his stores was failing and he was going to be firing the current manager and he offered me the position. The one thing I knew was that financially, I would continue to struggle in a commission-only position when my head was just not in the job. I had way too much idle time and I had to be self-motivated. And that was not me at this point. The management position would keep me busy for 70 hours a week and I would have a guaranteed paycheck. Rent-to-own was a fast-paced business, and that would keep my mind occupied. The job would be a win-win. I accepted the position, but it would be a few weeks before I could start. My boss, Lloyd, was a great man. And even though he knew that I was leaving my position with him, like I said, he looked at me like family. He hooked me up with a friend of his who had moved to Florida with his girlfriend, leaving behind a fully furnished mobile home that he was not going to be using. The friend was willing to let me move into the trailer if I made the monthly payments. I was excited that I would have my own place again. This was not without issues, though. The weather was beginning to turn hot as it was May, and when I looked at the trailer, I found that the air conditioner was out. Unfortunately, due to financial reasons, he was not going to be able to get the air fixed for at least two months. Almost as if it had been planned, one late night, I was at the mortgage office waiting to go to Rondell's house to sleep. I met a woman named Angie on the internet. We immediately hit it off and became great friends. Angie knew my situation because of the discussions that we had had over the course of the week, and she offered to let me crash at her place a few nights a week. That was a blessing. Even better was the fact that the store that I would be managing was within walking distance of her house. I stayed with Angie for a few days, and then a few more, and she eventually asked me to move in with her until my place was ready. I started my new job but not at the location I was told. 
The regional manager was now dragging his feet about firing the manager that I was to replace. I was now driving across the bridge to Indiana to work, which was a bit of an inconvenience. On top of that, my pay was not what was promised. After a month of this, I met with a gentleman by the name of Ken Schimpf. Ken owned a competing rent-to-own store by the name of Color Time, and he had a position available. The position paid even more money than I was promised at rent-wise. I accepted the offer. When I told my regional manager that I was turning in my notice, he immediately matched Color Time's salary and agreed to move me to the location that had been promised. By August, I was able to move into my new place. This was a 1994 model mobile home, and the current year was 2001, so it was not incredibly old. The gentleman who owned it had taken great care of the place. I now had somewhere where my kids could come spend the night. I had been able to see them on the weekends, but the only option was to hang out during the day, take them home at night, and then pick them back up the next morning. Cheryl and I did not have a particularly good working relationship at the time. Money was extremely tight on my end. She had a boyfriend, and I still had jealousy issues, and did not want my children around him. This actually had nothing to do with him. It was all spite on my end. The job was going great. When I took the store over, it was the worst performing store in the company out of 31 locations. In my third month as manager, we were named Store of the Month, and we would take that honor for three consecutive months, a company record. I had also started talking to Gina again. At first, it was his friends, but it started to move a little into the direction of more than friends. After a few weeks, the exact same thing happened as before. She thought she was ready, but she was not. Now I was even more confused than before. My depression ramped up once again. Keep in mind that this never went away, not even to this day. Depression is a matter of learning to control the severity for me. I went to a doctor and I tried a few different medications, but ultimately... All of them had some type of side effect that I did not like. Therefore, I had to find an alternate solution. Counseling and reading books helped. They're constantly to this day. I trained myself through these means to have a more positive attitude, even when looking straight into darkness. There's an adage that I share constantly to this day. Life is never as good as it seems, but it's also never as bad as it seems. Remember that. Life is a roller coaster full of ups and downs. You can never let yourself get too high during the good times or too low during the bad times. It all evens out eventually. I learned to use patience to combat my anger issues. Instead of immediately unleashing a hurtful comment in response to something I was unhappy with, I stopped. I took a breath before responding. When a situation was too intense, I would not respond at all, or I would just walk away. This was a very hard tactic to learn. But I've been very successful, and after 20 years of work, I rarely become visibly angry. Becoming a better person is a daily chore. Relationship-wise, I played the field for a while, and then I crossed a line that I should not have. I got involved with a customer, and that wasn't the worst part. She was married. I had fallen for the ever-popular, we have a horrible relationship and we're getting divorced line. The only reason I'm bringing this relationship up is because it has an unbelievable facet. This woman, I will call Jan. Jan and I started dating in February of 2002. I'd just started a position with a new company called Rentway. 
My management position went away when my previous company was bought out by Rent-A-Center, and they subsequently closed the location that I was managing. My regional manager for my first stint in Rent-A-Own was a divisional manager with Rentway. He had actually given me the heads up that the acquisition was going to take place and offered me a management position with his company. I was very good at what I did and therefore very sought after. I gladly accepted the offer and the new challenge because here again, I had a store that was one of the worst in the company, only this time there were 1,600 locations. I met Jan and her husband numerous times, rarely together. Jan started to show interest in me. Another customer who was one of Jan's family members told me how bad Jan's marriage was and that they were on the verge of getting divorced. Soon after, Jan told me a similar version of what her family member had told me. I knew it was wrong, but I really liked her. What I did not know at the time was that Jan had some serious mental issues. After dating a few weeks, Jan told me that she had to be completely honest with me. My assumption was that she was going to be informing me that her relationship with her husband was not as bad as she had initially indicated. Instead, she told me that she had pancreatic cancer and only had three to six months to live. This was not the news I expected to hear. She would share the updates given to her by the doctors after each visit. Each visit produced a more dire prognosis than the last. There was no point in thinking about starting divorce proceedings with such limited time on this earth. Many nights the pain was unbearable for her. Her body would wrench in agony as she laid next to me in the bed. All I could do was hold her and cry with her. I was determined to try to find a doctor who would be able to help, and I wondered if there was a clinical trial out there that she didn't know about. She told me that because of the progression of the cancer, she was no longer able to become pregnant. We stopped using contraception. Throughout the next month, I had some strange conversations with Jan through AOL Messenger on the internet. Some of these featured her writing that she just wanted to end it all, and then the conversation would turn incoherent with gibberish and misspelled words. She would not answer her phone, so I would drive to her house, but I would not knock on the door since she lived with her husband. One evening, I got a message from Jan's account that was written by Jan's mother. She wanted to thank me for being there for her daughter. She wrote that Jan had not been happy for a long time, and she was so glad that I could make the end of her life joyful. We discussed Jan's burial arrangements, the songs that she wanted played, and the purple roses that she wished to be displayed on her casket. I had a handful of conversations with her mother over the next few weeks. Generally, these conversations would take place after I messaged Jan. I would get a response from her mother saying that Jan was asleep in bed and she saw the message and did not want me to worry. I'd met her mother in person once at this point. She was perfectly fine that Jan was spending time with me. Jan's two daughters knew as well. They were five and seven so they were of an age that might say something about me when other people were around. This signaled to me that Jane was not afraid of the girls talking about me, so clearly the marriage was on the rocks. Imagine my shock when her husband, Tom, came to my store and asked me if I'd been sleeping with his wife. I decided to be honest and I told him that I was, and it was my understanding that they were getting a divorce. He then informed me that she had done this several times. He actually apologized to me. I confronted Jan and asked what the hell was happening. She obviously was more prepared for this than I was because she dropped a bombshell. She told me that she would step out of my life if that's what I wanted, 
but she wanted me to know that she was pregnant. My brain melted. I asked her how this was possible since she had told me that the cancer treatments made pregnancy impossible. She responded, that's what the doctors told me, but don't worry, Tom thinks the baby is his. To say that I was confused would be an understatement. Jan only had a few months to live, so how could she continue the pregnancy? I felt sorry for her, but I knew we needed to break things off. So I told her that I would remain her friend, but that would be the extent of our relationship. A few days later, I got a message from Jan's AOL account. Jan's mother was messaging me to inform me that this was it, that Jan was on her deathbed. They had called the family in to say their final goodbyes, but she made it clear that I could not come to the hospital. I was an emotional mess. I called Cheryl, who came over to my place and hung out for a bit. We had a long talk, and while she was there, my AOL informed me that I had a message. Apparently, Jan had rallied and was doing so much better that the hospital was going to release her. Jan wanted to go play bingo, and she wanted me to take her. I know how stupid this sounds, but she loved to play bingo, so it did not surprise me that she'd want to go just days after nearly dying. I was just happy that she was still with us. Cheryl, on the other hand, thought something was fishy. We went to play bingo that night, and I again made it clear to Jan that we could only be friends from this point forward. I pressed her for more details about her illness and the pregnancy. She was unwilling to give me any further information, so I asked if I could join her on her next doctor's visit. She refused. I asked for the names of her doctors. No dice. Something was not right. Her mother had an AOL account, so I looked it up and sent her a message. I told her that I had appreciated all the talks that we had, but I needed some answers. That's when her mother informed me that we had never spoken on the computer. I wrote back that I was confused as we had had several conversations online about her daughter. She again affirmed that she had not been chatting with me and that the only time we had ever spoken was once in person on the occasion when we met. Then I asked about Jan's cancer. I eagerly sat back waiting for the response to pop up on the screen. My stomach was churning. I felt lightheaded as I braced for the answer that I already anticipated. And there it was. Jan did not have cancer. And then her mother wrote, Is that what she told you? Words escaped me when remembering that moment. So many thoughts and questions crashed through my mind. Had our relationship been a complete lie? I remembered all the times that I held her as she screamed in agony. There were so many times that I wept when I thought about her daughters losing their mother at such a young age. I'd cried for myself, too, because I was going to lose someone to an awful disease, and there was absolutely nothing I could do about it. Now I felt like a complete idiot. She played me like Elton John plays the piano. I had one more question for her mother. Was Jan really pregnant, or was that a lie, too? It turns out that being pregnant was the only thing that she had not lied about. I confronted Jan with my newfound knowledge. She became irate and initially said that her mother was lying. Then she switched her story, said that her mother did not know about the cancer. Then she admitted that she lied about the cancer. She reassured me that the baby was Tom's and I would never have to deal with her again after this night. For the most part, she was correct but she was still a customer at my store, and I still saw her almost every single week. 
she went on to have a baby boy. She brought him into the store when he was about three months old. Her other children had very dark brown hair, dark brown eyes, and they both looked like Jan. Tom had dark hair and brown eyes as well. This baby had blonde hair and blue eyes. He looked amazingly the way I did when I was a baby. I asked her bluntly, Is this my son? She just made a sort of surprised face and walked off. A few weeks later, her family member that had told me about Jan and Tom having a rocky relationship came into the store. After conducting our business, I asked her if Jan's baby was my son. She looked stunned and said it was not something that she felt comfortable talking about and hurried herself out of the store. To this day, I do not know if that little boy is my son or not. Unfortunately, Jan committed suicide in September of 2005 at the age of 28. Her life was filled with mental health issues that ultimately ended her life. As much as I wanted to know if the baby was my child, I did not want to disrupt the family with any more turmoil than they had already gone through. Tom was actually a good father and a husband. He thought this little boy was his and he raised him as his own. There were many reasons that I did not press the issue. I thought about the damage I could cause pressing for an answer. I also considered if my inaction meant that I was turning my back on my possible son. What role would I play in his life if he were mine? Would I fight for custody or take a two-year-old from the only family he had ever known? What if it turned out that he was not my son and all I'd done is caused a bunch of problems for no reason? So I left it alone, but I've always wondered about the truth. Gina was back in my life. We gave our relationship another try. That lasted for about two weeks before the same problem reared its ugly head. Every time that we tried and things did not work out, I would hurt worse than the previous time. This was now attempt number three, if you're keeping score at home, over about a three-year period. The pattern would continue over the next five years. I was like Charlie Brown repeatedly trying to kick the football and Gina was Lucy always yanking it away at the last minute. Gina had me good, and I had it bad for her. She was the perfect woman for me, and no one could ever convince me otherwise. In my mind, I just knew that eventually she would come around. 